and welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 20, Sam Steele and the Northwest Mounted Police. I'm Pascal Halliday. And I'm Keith Halliday. The Mountie is one of the most powerful and long-lasting images to come out of the gold rush. Whether wearing red surge in Dawson City or mushing a dog sled on a rugged Yukon patrol, the Mountie is a staple of Klondike storytelling. You can find him in the early Hollywood movies about the Stampede in the 1920s and 1930s, or on TV as Sergeant Preston with his loyal husky Yukon King in the 1950s. And these mythical images are inspired by reality. The Force's early history books are packed with epic feats of endurance, perseverance, and heroism. And the presence of the Northwest Mounted Police in the Yukon made a huge difference in how the stampede rolled out on the Yukon side versus the Alaska side of the border. There were no Soapy Smiths where the Northwest Mounted Police were in charge. But to understand the Northwest Mounted Police, you have to know that they were very different than your typical police force today. And it was a different time. Canada was part of the British Empire, which was at the height of its power. The Northwest Mounted Police were one of many similar forces around the Empire, whose purpose was to bring order while expanding and protecting government authority. The force was modeled on the Royal Irish Constabulary, which included functions that today would be divided across police, civil government, military, and judicial officials. And that icon of the Northwest Mounted Police, Sam Steele, whom we'll talk about in a minute, he went on from the Yukon to command a cavalry unit during the British Boer War campaigns in South Africa, and then held a senior role in the South African Constabulary. The Northwest Mounted Police were established in 1873. Most of the British colonies in North America had come together to form Canada and had acquired the territories of the Hudson's Bay Company. It was an absolutely enormous purchase, including what's now northern Ontario, northern Quebec, the Prairies, the Northwest Territories, the Yukon, and more. The Red River Rebellion had just taken place in Manitoba. There were few treaties or agreements or even official relationships with the Indigenous peoples in the area. There was essentially no government presence in most of the vast region, and the border was unpatrolled. Meanwhile, American settlements were surging west with large numbers of traders, homesteaders, and U.S. Army units fanning out across the continent. The government in Ottawa feared that it might lose control of its new territories. In fact, a better way to say it might be that Ottawa feared it might never end up even getting control of its new territories that it had just purchased. In such a situation, ambitions to build a transcontinental railway would be impossible. So the Northwest Mounted Police were established and sent west to establish order and bring government authority to the area. We won't get too deep into the details of how they dealt with Indigenous peoples, rogue American whiskey traders, the Northwest Rebellion of 1885, or how they supported the construction of the Pacific Railway, but you should take away a few things from their experience on the prairies. First, in the 25 years between their founding and the Klondike Stampede, the force developed officers and men who were tough, savvy in the bush, and used to acting independently far from headquarters. Second, they were experienced in stamping their authority onto unruly frontier zones. They were well-armed, sometimes even with cannons, but perhaps their biggest weapon was their reputation and the strong personalities of their leaders. Third, they had established a working model, effective in the eyes of Ottawa officials, with First Nations in their areas of operation. This is a very complex and nuanced situation, which you could write entire books about. On the one hand, their British flags, red coats, and quasi-military armament made it clear they were instruments of the British Empire and the new Canadian government. Their mission was to expand Canadian government authority into the former Hudson's Bay lands, which meant imposing Canadian government authority into the territories of a large number of First Nations across a vast area. They were supposed to police the treaties that were being signed at the time. 
On the other hand, they also acted to impose respect for the law by British subjects, Americans, and others entering the region to settle, trade, or do other business. This included cracking down on American whiskey traders who were trying to exploit First Nations peoples. The Northwest Mounted Police also arrested a number of Euro-Canadians accused of violent disputes or even murdering First Nations peoples, for example. Some individual officers tried to build productive relationships with local First Nations leaders and to mediate in the growing number of disputes between First Nations people and incoming ranchers, railway men, and so on. This was very different from the stance U.S. military forces took south of the border. The force also distributed government food to First Nations devastated by the massive overhunting of the prairie buffalo herds. They strove for an image of tough but fair. But it also has to be remembered that the only reason the food had to be distributed was because incoming Euro-Canadians had wiped out the enormous buffalo herds. And the force also enforced stringent new laws and regulations on First Nations people. For example, Canada imposed the so-called pass system. Any First Nations person leaving one of the new reserves needed a pass signed by the local Indian agent. Think to yourself how this must have felt to peoples who had lived for thousands of years in the region, and, until recently, had maybe not even heard of the Canadian government. Even though the force, and the government in Ottawa, had received legal advice that this system violated both the law and the new Treaty 7, the government and the force continued to enforce it. And, when the Northwest Rebellion broke out in 1885, the Northwest Mounted Police was actively employed in Canada's military response to suppress the rising. Many of the officers who would rise to prominence in the Yukon a decade and a half later served in this campaign. So, when rumors started to come out of the Yukon watershed that an increasing number of prospectors were entering the country and finding gold, it was natural for Ottawa to send the Northwest Mounted Police to the region. A Northwest Mounted Police officer named Charles Constantine was the first to be sent. Ottawa was receiving reports that American miners were operating in Canadian territory with scant regard for Canadian laws and regulations, which indeed they were, given that there was little sign of Canadian government in the area. We talked about this in an earlier episode on 40 Mile and the miners' meetings. Missionaries had also been pushing Ottawa to do something about whiskey traders doing business with First Nations people. Inspector Constantine and a staff sergeant went to the Yukon in 1894. By this time, as we mentioned in earlier episodes, the community of 40 Mile was almost a decade old, had over 500 people, and could claim multiple stores, almost a dozen saloons, at least one distillery, and even a public library. He duly reported to Ottawa that no one was paying Canadian customs on imported goods from the United States, and that miners had taken over $300,000 in gold out without paying royalties. He recommended a force of 40 men be sent back to the Yukon to establish order. Ottawa rewarded Constantine by sending him back to the Yukon in 1895, but with only half the men he recommended. He took with him another inspector, a surgeon, two sergeants, two corporals, and 13 constables. It being so difficult to get to the Yukon directly via Canadian routes, they took the train to Seattle, then a steamer to St. Michael, Alaska, and then a riverboat upstream into Canada. Constantine built a fort at 40 Mile, which they called Fort Constantine, and set about establishing order, Northwest Mounted Police style. This involved getting to know the locals, sending dog sled patrols around the region, and, when the time was right, reminding everyone they had to pay Canadian customs on their imports and royalties on their gold. As you can imagine, not all the rugged individualists around 40 Mile were pleased to have the Northwest Mounted Police show up in the region. Even with a force of 20 armed men, Constantine needed to show quite a bit of character, and more than a little diplomatic skill, to get his way with the hundreds of miners in the neighborhood, also armed, by the way. 
One of the key events occurred when Constantine intervened and overturned a decision by one of the traditional miners' meetings. This could have gone badly wrong, but Constantine successfully put his foot down. It was only a year after Constantine and his men arrived that the big discovery was made on Bonanza Creek. But they and Fort Constantine were there, representing the Canadian government, when it happened. There must have been considerable trepidation in the barracks of Fort Constantine once they realized tens of thousands of mostly foreign gold-crazed stampeders were headed their way. These are the men, plus some reinforcements, who quickly moved to Dawson and built the police compound that Tap and Adney described when he arrived. About 30 men, 8 or 10 log buildings, including barracks for officers, barracks for men, offices, storerooms, post office, courtroom, all arranged in classic frontier fort fashion, alongside three sides of a square, with a four-foot-high fence instead of a stockade and a big flagpole with the British flag. If you visit Dawson today, a couple of the buildings are still standing. Speaking of reinforcements, a contingent had been on the same ship from Victoria as Tap and Adney when we described his voyage to Skagway earlier in the podcast. He describes them as stalwart, quote, truly a fine-looking body of men. He went on to say that the crowd in Victoria cheered them loudly as they boarded the ship. They and their 74 horses were to take the same route to the Klondike as Adney. If you read Adney's book and make a note of each time he mentions the police, you can get an idea of the kind of jobs the Northwest Mounted Police did during the gold rush. It was hugely varied. In effect, with little other Canadian government presence other than surveyor William Ogilvy, the police did almost everything. Bear with me while we go through this list. They enforced the law, served as magistrates or judges, built their own log buildings, chopped wood for heat, guarded the food warehouse during periodic food shortage scares, issued warnings for people without enough supplies to leave the Yukon, laid planks on ice floes to rescue stampeders arriving in Dawson when the river was half-frozen, did dog sled patrols around the territory, went to claims that were about to lapse with watch in hand to tell everyone exactly when the claim could be restaked, a story we told in an earlier podcast, decided who got the claim after two men arrived at the mining office at exactly the same time, Inspector Constantine decided they would split it 50-50, provided food and shelter to people who got into trouble traveling in the winter from Dawson to Skagway, did the census, fed and tended to the dog teams, ran the custom posts and collected the customs duties, ordered and enforced that boats going through Miles Canyon needed a pilot, ordered and enforced that newcomers needed a full outfit of food and supplies to be admitted to the Yukon, guarded large shipments of gold, and sorted the mail, which Adney says they were not very good at. Miners would pay an officer a dollar to get his letter faster, or ask a woman, who the police treated gallantly, to go into the post office and get it. Not only was the list long, it was unpredictable. Shortly after midnight on July 4th, U.S. Independence Day, the constables in Dawson City thought they were also going to have to suppress a rebellion. They awoke to a spate of wild shooting and feared that a rebellion by U.S. miners was underway. This was much feared by the Canadian government and loudly talked about by some of the wilder American miners who liked to tell stories about how Americans in Texas had rebelled to break that territory away from Mexico. However, they soon discovered it was just a party to celebrate Independence Day. The shooting escalated as miners all over town whooped it up, shooting revolvers and rifles into the air. The Northwest Mounted Police bugler kindly played Yankee Doodle and the Star-Spangled Banner, and the force tried to go back to sleep. Adney says the shooting was so loud and widespread, it spooked the dogs, many of whom ran into the bush. People were looking for their dogs for days. The force set up a chain of police posts along the Yukon River, which allowed something that absolutely amazed the old sourdoughs. The winter trail was relatively well used and therefore broken in. Using relays of dogs between stations, you could travel from Dawson to Tidewater in 10 days, sometimes less. 
Adney says that the United States mail carrier, who had traveled the trail in the early days, described this amazing chain of police posts as follows. Quote, If anyone had told me a person could make the trip in winter from Dawson to Skagway without lighting a match, I couldn't have believed it. Although some complained that the arrival of government authority had ruined the freedoms enjoyed by prospectors in the North, the vast majority valued the law and order the force brought. As you'll recall from our episode on 40 Mile, the miners' meetings had begun to break down as newcomers arrived and they turned into unpredictable popularity contests, often lubricated by free drinks. Adney reminds us that the law and order on the Yukon side of the border was not the result of the force alone. The old miner customs, the harsh environment that bred mutual respect and cooperation, and the fact that most were focused on keeping to themselves and finding their gold all contributed. He says that both before and after the police arrived, there was, quote, a dearth of blood-curdling tales that are expected to be the stock of every mining camp. Nonetheless, the Northwest Mounted Police were widely believed to have done a very good job. Adney put it this way, quote, The Mounted Police, both officers and men, in their capacity as preservers of order and as individuals, commanded the respect of every miner. Captain Constantine, upon his departure from Dawson, received a testimonial in the form of $2,000 worth of nuggets, which were subsequently made up in their natural form into a beautiful loving cup to show how the miners felt at a time when almost every branch of the public service had forfeited their confidence. However, the miners took a dim view of the rest of the Canadian government's efforts in the Yukon as more officials arrived from outside. The mining commissioner was considered incompetent and his clerks corrupt. The crown attorney, who was also a land agent, was widely accused of abusing his position in various real estate deals for personal gain. The mining inspectors, quote, had only such previous experience in mining as they may have acquired as a horse dealer and an uncertified master of a whaling vessel, respectively. British and Canadian miners organized a miners' association for self-protection from official incompetence and corruption and asked Ottawa for a parliamentary investigation into how the Yukon was being administered. Nor could the police do everything. They dealt firmly with theft. There were a few murder trials, and the saloons were indeed closed on Sunday, and no labor was allowed on the Sabbath. Indeed, at least one man was arrested for sawing wood for his own use on Sunday, and another for fishing. However, the miners resisted the idea that the police should monitor their cleanups to make sure the right amount of royalties were paid to the Canadian government. The police decided not to make a point of this one, and mining royalties were, in effect, self-reported by miners. Adney also points out, rather acidly, that the amount paid in royalties or customs duties was never written on the receipt. The subtext being that there was no paper trail for Ottawa to confirm that all the money that had been collected by local officials had actually made it into government coffers. He calculated that, despite this, the Canadian government made a profit on the Yukon during this period, covering the costs of the Northwest Mounted Police and other expenses, equal to about $20 for every person who entered the Yukon. It was at this point that the iconic figure of Sam Steele comes onto the Yukon stage. There's a copy of the terse telegram he received in January 1898, urgently ordering him to the Yukon, on our episode webpage at klondikegoldrush.org. He didn't single-handedly bring law, order, and Canadian government to the Yukon, of course. Constantine and his men were already there and doing the things we just described. But Steele was already a Canadian hero, famous for his exploits across the western frontier in the Northwest Mounted Police. He was exactly what British Canada looked for in a hero at the time. The Dictionary of Canadian Biography describes him as, quote, the quintessential Canadian man of action in the Victorian era. He had a walrus mustache and looked manly in his uniform. He was tough, gruff, and no-nonsense. He was independent and got things done. He could ride, shoot, and lead his men across any wilderness obstacle. He was honest, dedicated, and fiercely loyal to Queen and the Empire. 
Sir Samuel Benfield Steele was born in Ontario in 1848, the son of a former Royal Navy officer. His first military service was at the age of 14 during the Fenian raids into Canada. He then stayed in the militia. Before he was 20, he was a militia officer and had raised and trained a company of infantry. At 22, he volunteered for the British-Canadian military expedition against the Red River Rebellion in Manitoba, we mentioned a minute ago. As a former militia officer, he was offered a non-commissioned officer's role, but he declined the offer and served as a private, remarking later that he learned much more about a soldier's life in that role than he would have done if he had accepted a more senior job. After his performance on the rugged overland march from Ontario to Manitoba, he was promoted to corporal anyway. Three years later, the Northwest Mounted Police were founded and he joined immediately. He was in the first wave of troopers headed west and was soon establishing new posts, training fresh men, and showing the kind of initiative and results his superiors expected. One superior on a brutal trail expedition remarked that Steele did the manual labor of two men. He was full of energy and had a sense of humor that allowed him to deal effectively with his men and others he encountered. A string of promotions soon followed. Life threw new challenges his way when the Transcontinental Railway came through. The railway cut through First Nations territories and seriously disrupted hunting and community life. The railway crews brought liquor, gambling, and a string of ugly labor disputes. In a typical incident after subcontractors failed to pay many workers, and despite being gravely ill with a fever, he stood up in front of the unruly workers. Les McLaughlin says it was with a Winchester rifle in one hand and the riot act in the other. And he read the workers of the riot act and used his reputation and force of personality to defuse the situation. Then, the Northwest Rebellion of 1885 broke out. Steele led the mounted troops and scouts of the Alberta Field Force. He led his force north to Edmonton and then along the North Saskatchewan River in pursuit of a Cree force led by Chief Big Bear. The rebellion, both in its outbreak and the subsequent military campaign, damaged the reputations of many other senior Northwest Mounted Police officers. But Steele came out of the rebellion as a widely respected officer, both in the force and among Ottawa officials, and was even widely known from the newspapers across Canada. He went on to a series of roles across B.C. and the Prairies, where he cemented his reputation as a troubleshooter who could get things done and resolve disputes with a minimum of fuss. One Northwest Mounted Police constable said that Steele was, quote, feared and respected by men who, as a usual thing, feared neither God nor man. You can see why, when the Klondike Stampede started, Ottawa thought he was a natural choice to send to the Yukon. His orders in January 1898 were to reinforce the police presence in the Yukon, these orders included establishing border posts at major entry points into the Yukon, which led to posts on Chilkoot Pass, White Pass, and elsewhere. And we should remember what this meant in practice, leading men to the top of the Chilkoot Pass at the height of winter in February and setting up the post. His men also enforced that famous new rule requiring stampeders to have a ton of food and supplies before entering the Yukon. After overwintering at Bennett with that winter's wave of stampeders during the rush down river, he saw the dangers to boaters at Miles Canyon, as we mentioned in an earlier episode, and ordered that stampeders had to use pilots through the canyon. Some say he did not have legal authority to do this, but most obeyed him anyway. In Dawson, he slept just a few hours a night and acted as police officer, magistrate, Indian agent, health officer, and any other job he thought needed to be done. He reported directly to the Minister of the Interior in Ottawa and the Yukon Commissioner, it took weeks, at a minimum, to send a message to Ottawa and receive a response, so he had considerable latitude. Eventually, he had around 250 men in his force. Steele knew he didn't have the resources to replicate the law-abiding society familiar to Southern Canadians in a frontier environment with so many foreign stampeders unfamiliar with British Empire or Canadian law. 
He focused his men on cracking down on major crimes such as murder or theft. As for things like liquor, gambling, and prostitution, he attempted to regulate or discourage the worst abuses. Many minor crimes ended up earning the offender a sentence of so many days chopping wood on the government woodpile. He also sometimes took the law into his own hands, as he had at Miles Canyon. He famously expelled people from the Yukon, something known as getting a blue ticket, even though he had no legal authority to do so. Historian William Morrison described it this way, quote, The substitution of police common sense for orthodox legal knowledge and procedure was to become an important aspect of law enforcement in the Yukon. Steele was replaced in September 1899. William Stewart in the Northern Review says that a big reason he was replaced was that his efforts to suppress corruption of other local officials had made him enemies. But on the other hand, all three Dawson newspapers, who seldom agreed on anything, were unanimous in opposing his replacement. When looking at the history of law enforcement in the Yukon, it's important for us to consider that these colonial laws were very different from traditional indigenous forms of justice. For thousands of years, indigenous nations in the North, in the words of one historian, quote, develop unique laws and legal traditions tied to traditional territories and informed by relationships, the land, the animals, and the spirit world. These were complex social, cultural, and legal systems, but they did not feature the usual markers of British or American legal systems, such as courthouses, jails, and police forces. When the Russian Empire, and then the British Empire, and then the United States arrived in the region, they tended to ignore local indigenous practices. Indeed, if you read accounts written at the time, they tend to talk about bringing order and the law to lawless and wild lands, which was hardly the case to the people who already lived there. The arrival of the Northwest Mounted Police in the Yukon in 1894, as we mentioned earlier, was a milestone in the Canadian government's attempt to impose Canadian law. Further reinforcements arrived during the gold rush. But don't think of the arrival of the Northwest Mounted Police as a sudden switch to the kind of Canadian law you might see in Ottawa. Sure, Sam Steele clamped down on people working on Sundays, for example. But the force's attitude to prostitution and gambling was much more flexible than it was in downtown Calgary. Out on the creeks or with First Nations farther from the goldfields, little changed in practice, at least for a while. The complex relationship between the Northwest Mounted Police and Indigenous people that had involved in the force's heartland on the prairies also evolved in the Yukon. Officers worked hard to establish relationships of trust with First Nations leaders and people, and in their minds, to protect them from the excesses of prospectors, whiskey traders, and con men. But they also took tough action when they thought they needed to. They weren't armed like a paramilitary force just for show. In this complex and rapidly changing environment, there were bound to be misunderstandings. One example is the case of the four Nantec brothers, whose case came to light a few years ago when the graves of two of them were discovered during a construction project in Dawson City. You can read the details in a Yukon news story on this episode's webpage on klondikegoldrush.org. The details were murky even at the time, and that was 120 years ago. What seems to have happened is the following. A First Nations woman near McClintock, between Tagish and Whitehorse, either found or was given a can of white powder. She thought it was baking powder, but it was probably arsenic, which was used for pest control and other purposes at the time. She baked bread, and she and another First Nations man who ate it died. It's speculated that the four Nantuck brothers were from the same clan as the deceased and had a responsibility to respond. We don't know if they tried peaceful means to resolve the situation or, if they did, what happened. But in the end... Two white prospectors were shot, one fatally, and the Nantuck brothers were arrested and charged with murder. Two of the brothers died of tuberculosis in police custody in Dawson. The other two were hanged. An American miner was also hanged at the same time, also for murder, in a separate incident involving his tentmate. Ken Coates, a Yukon historian, 
told the Yukon News during a story about the finding of the Nantuck brothers' bodies a few years ago that the hangings were intended to send a message. Quote, To First Nations, if you step out of line, you'll face the full weight of the law, and that includes execution. For the Americans, don't take things into your own hands. The government of Canada will take all measures necessary and impose justice of the highest order. As the gold rush died down, the size of the Northwest Mounted Police Force in the Yukon declined. The wild days of frontier lawmaking during a gold rush faded into more routine patrols and policing. Although, as the Lost Patrol would find out, patrolling in the Yukon in the winter is never routine. The legends of the force would live on, however, especially in Hollywood, which we'll tell you all about in an upcoming episode. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really like the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. Thank you.